0: This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. Well, let's go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to read um, verses 18 through 25. In many ways, this uh, this section is um, one of Paul's finest moments. It's just glorious. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man, where is the scribe? where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men well as we uh, come to this section in 1 Corinthians this is we're, we're entering into really what is the heart of Paul's uh, argument with the Corinthians uh, from the uh, appearance of it, it looks like he 's dealing with divisions in the church, of course, chapter one, verses ten and eleven. I hear from chloe 's people that there are divisions among you i 'm of paul apollos paul, so forth but really the 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 fundamental problem is not the divisions; the divisions are a symptom. The fundamental problem is that they are they are losing their grasp on the gospel in favor of Human wisdom, which then has created in them a desire to go after human teachers and to attach themselves to human teachers and and to elevate human teachers, and it's in it's in that attachment to human teachers and in that addiction, if you will, to Sophia, to wisdom, worldly wisdom. That is that um, that the divisiveness comes about. And so what Paul's doing is he's really, in a sense, reorienting them, rerouting them in the gospel itself. Sometimes we need to remember that um, the, the, the best way to address problems in our lives is to get reconnected to the gospel. <laughs> uh, sometimes uh, we we want to treat the symptoms, and we want to treat the problems, and the reality is, is that we've just kind of moved away from, from the basics of the gospel, and if we got, in a sense, if we got back closer to the cross, some of these things would actually work themselves out. And so here's Paul, and he's going to talk in, in chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, that's the first paragraph, the cross, which is the wisdom power of God. You have to understand, the Corinthians are going to think that, that that sounds silly, but that's Paul's point. The cross is both the wisdom and power of God. Then in one twenty-six through 31, he's going to then talk about the divine calling that comes by God through the message of the cross, through the word of the cross, and uh, he's going to remind them that that divine calling is also a demonstration of the wisdom and power of God doing something for them. That they could have never done for themselves, in fact what paul 's going to do is he 's going to uh, he 's going to kind of take the gloves off in that paragraph and he 's going to remind them that that they themselves are among the foolish, and they themselves are among the weak, and it is God by his divine grace who has called them. ...through a foolish message that looks weak from all appearances to actually become his people... ...and that's a demonstration of God's power as well. And then Paul's going to talk about the preaching of the cross, which is also the wisdom and power of God. And all these things, uh, whether it's the, the message of the cross itself or the divine calling of, of the Corinthians... or or preaching itself, all of these things would have been um, uh, areas where the Corinthians were were, were very sensitive. So the idea of preaching, they would have been looking at rhetoric. They would have been looking at oratorical polish and skill and impressiveness and persuasive power. And Paul's going to actually argue that the simple, straightforward preaching of the cross is also the demonstration of the Spirit of God and of power power. And it's going to be that method of simple proclamation that is going to be the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And so that's Paul's argument. So last week we started in verse 18, the word of the cross, folly and power. And so what Paul does in this section is he contrasts the word of wisdom, or more technically, the wisdom of word, which is the Corinthian idea of of, of of polished, persuasive, impressive argument versus the word of the cross, the message of the cross and Paul is going to talk about this word of the cross and, and so so important for us to remember that the message of the cross, the message of a crucified messiah, would have been an absolutely repugnant idea to everybody in the first century. There was nobody that thought the cross was cool. There was nobody that thought the cross should be made into stained glass windows. There was nobody that thought you should sing songs about a cross. And so, as I noted last week, the perspective of the cross in the first century absolutely predates the sentimental idea that we have of the old rugged cross, It was a cruel, barbaric, shameful death that you didn't even bring up. You didn't bring up crucifixion in polite company. And it was a repugnant part of the gospel message. And Paul says, you can either go the way of human wisdom and the words of human wisdom, or you can embrace the word or the message of the cross. And then he makes this distinction, to those who are perishing, That message of of a crucified Messiah, that message of the cross, is absolute foolishness. But to those who are being saved, that message of a crucified Messiah is the power of God. And this going to be that very theme that Paul locks down into and tightens up and wants to drive home to the Corinthians. If you are among those who are being saved, the message of a crucified Savior is to you the very power of God. In fact, by Paul saying that... He is actually stating something that's an incredible irony. Because the cross was weakness. When when Jesus is crucified, it it is the epitome of weakness. And yet what appears to be weakness is nothing less than the demonstration of divine power. And so Paul would say in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And of course, the cross is what brings about the great reversals that we talked about last week. And then verses 19 and 20, making the world's wisdom foolish. Uh, Paul, in order to underscore this very point, um, remember, there's the, there are these contrasts. There's the world's wisdom and there's God's wisdom. There's the world's, in a sense, the world's power. There's God's power. And it is going to be the contrast between these two, uh, in a sense, these two opposing forces that Paul is going to capitalize on here. And so he quotes two Quotes one Old Testament text and alludes to another. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And, and of course the idea is, is that God's message, the word of the cross, is something that God takes to make the world's wisdom into absolute foolishness. In other words, God's wisdom shows the world's wisdom for what it really is. Absolute, complete, bankruptcy and in fact the rest of the paragraph is going to unfold this now um, in verse 20 when he's like where is the wise man where is the scribe wise man of course in a sense the greek philosopher the scribe the jewish theologian where's the debater the rhetorician the the one of oratorical skill and persuasive power and it's not a challenge for them to come on it is actually in a sense sort of the cry of victory where are they Where they're nowhere to be found. They're a part of this passing age. And the cross has done away with them. Now that brings us to verse 21. And this this is explaining, as it were, how God has made the wisdom of this world into foolishness. He says, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God... God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so in the first part of verse 21 talks about the inability of the world's wisdom. And Paul's point is is just straightforward. It's, It's absolutely clear, and that is that God has specifically designed human wisdom to be totally deficient as a way to come to know him human wisdom will always be utterly deficient as a way to know God. And so whether it is human reason or human rationality or human knowledge, human wisdom, all of those uh, all of those um, manifestations of human wisdom, mere worldly wisdom, are all bankrupt when it comes to actually knowing God. Now, th- this is not um, you know, just some random text that tells us that it's impossible for the world through its wisdom to know God. This is actually the consistent message of Scripture over and over and over again. And so, the w- world's wisdom is... Fallible, temporary, short-term, and self-absorbed. And it is because of this that through human wisdom, you can never come to know God. Now, think about this for a moment. Does the fall affect our ability to think? Yes. Romans chapter 1. The fall, sin affects, it's what we call the noetic view or the uh, uh, noetic view or impact of sin. That is the way it affects the mind. So the mind cannot subject itself to the law of God, Romans 8, 7, for it is not even able to do so, right? So my the way that I perceive, the way that I think uh, by nature is actually, in a sense, opposed to God and his truth. So I come into this world with the inability to simply know God by the power of my own human reason because my own human reason is fallen. All right? So I'm never going to know God through a fallible, fallen, human approach. But there's more. It's not just simply that we're fallen. It's not just simply that sin has impacted uh, our ability to think. It is also that... (laughs) In in a sense, even if sin had never entered into this world, we would still, not by human wisdom, be able to know God because God is infinite and we are finite. And so human wisdom, by its very nature, forget forget its fallenness for a moment, human wisdom is actually limited in what it is able to know. And so the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. I can't come into this world and actually just come to know God as a finite, let alone fallen human being, through the means of human wisdom. Now, does that actually have an effect on the way that we should view evangelism? And apologetics, defending the faith, does it have a, a, an impact on the way we should view preaching? Um, you cannot reason somebody into the kingdom of God. You cannot marshal 29 outstanding reasons why the Bible is true and why you should believe it and then have those reasons be what persuades a person to actually come to faith. And the reason is is because I'm finite and I'm fallen and I am at base nature in opposition to God. And so Paul wants to make it abundantly clear The wisdom of the world is not a means by which you can know God. Now, this is a slap in the face to human pride because we think that we can do just about everything. I mean, we put somebody on the moon. I mean, we send up space shuttles. We've created computers. I mean... You know, now human potential is is absolutely stunning and remarkable. And as image bearers, there is a sense in which human ingenuity and capacity for great things is really, truly amazing. But one thing that human beings can never do is come to the knowledge of God by their own wisdom. Gordon Fee makes this great comment. He says, A God discovered by human wisdom will be both a projection of human fallenness and a source of human pride. And this constitutes the worship of the creature, not the creator. In other words, if you perceive God by human wisdom, then one, it's going to be a projection of your own fallenness. Think about the Greek gods for a minute. What's one of the things that marks all of the Greek pantheon? And that is that they're petty, they're given to anger, they're given to lust. In other words, they are just simply a deified reflection of fallen human beings, okay? And so if you're going to try to know God through human wisdom, you're going to come up with this idea of a God who actually looks more like you than looks like God. That's what happens. I've told you this before. That great uh, reformed theologian, Mark Twain, said that God created man in his image, and man has been returning the favor ever since. That's what we do. We want God to be just like us. And so Fee's absolutely right. The God that you come to know by human wisdom is just a God of your own making, a God of your own projected fallenness, um, and then, of course, a a, a source of incredible pride. I mean, a manageable deity doesn't humble you. A manageable deity exalts you, right? And so Paul is absolutely adamant. Inability of the world's wisdom to know God. But then notice the second part of verse 21. God was well pleased with the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so now there's this, there's this wonderful sense of contrast. So the world's wisdom is bankrupt in coming to know God. But that doesn't mean that you can't know God. That, that's actually good news. Although God is incomprehensible, he is yet still knowable. You will never be able to fully comprehend God in this age or in the age to come. But God is knowable. How is God knowable? He's not knowable through human wisdom, but he is knowable through something that he's done. And what is that that he's done? Notice this language. God was well-pleased. I don't know how the ESV does this, but the idea of God took pleasure, okay, through the foolishness of the preaching. God took pleasure, God was well pleased. Uh, the, the, the word itself is, uh, to me, to take pleasure or to find satisfaction in something. Same word, by the way, that's used at the baptism of Jesus. Ma- uh, Matthew three seventeen. this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Same word. Uh, same word that's used at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 5, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, same word that's used in Luke 12, 32 do not fear little flock the father has taken pleasure to give you the kingdom it is the same word that's used in galatians 1 15 and 16 where paul's talking about how he was a persecutor of the church and yet god was well pleased to reveal his son in me so that i would preach christ among the gentiles It is the same word that's used in Colossians 1, 19 and 20 where it says that it was the Father's good pleasure to cause the fullness of deity to dwell in bodily form in Jesus Christ. It's the same concept that we have in Psalm 115 and verse 3. Our God is in the heavens and he does what? Whatever he pleases. (laughs) Wow! Wow! You know what that also means? That means God is the happiest person in the universe. The one that can do whatever he pleases and who is holy, just, and good. That's the happiest person in the universe right there, right? Or Psalm 135, verse 5, our God is in the heavens and whatever he pleases, he does. And so this idea of God's good pleasure, by the way, um, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless uh, in him or before him, having predestined us to adoption of of the sons according to his good pleasure. Why are you saved? Because it pleased God. That's why. When we talk about God's good pleasure, all we're talking about is his sovereign, holy will. What is God's sovereign, holy will? It's his good pleasure. What is God's good pleasure? It is his sovereign, holy will. And so God says, here's here's the way I'm going to make this. Human wisdom will be a bankrupt system and it will never come to know me, but I'm gonna be pleased to do what? To do something, notice this, through through what? Through preaching. Okay, God's ways are strange. God's ways are strange. If you would have been in charge of getting the most important message out across the entire planet, would you have thought to yourself, obviously the most effective way to communicate this vitally important message is to raise up men who will go out and preach it. That that just doesn't sound like the most effective use of divine wisdom to me. But that's because God is God and we are not. And so he says, it pleased God through the preaching. Now, when Paul says this, He's using an expression that actually has in mind both content and form or method, okay? In other words, the content is the word of the cross, that's what's preached, but you cannot neglect the fact that it is through a medium or through a method called preaching. Now, here's the great thing. The, The Corinthians were um, were in love with this idea of rhetoric and the art of persuasion and the idea of um, of be, even being manipu- emotionally manipulated through persuasive speech and to them that was not only entertainment but that was that was real skill and paul says here 's what God was pleased to do he was pleased through the thing preached that is through the message of the cross that comes through straightforward, simple, verbal, authoritative proclamation. The proclamation of a kerux, a herald. Now, we don't usually, we we have talking heads. We don't have heralds anymore. What would a herald do? That's, uh, by the way, herald, H-E-R-A-L-D, not herald, H-A-R-O-L-D. Not like Uncle Harold, but Harold as in heraldine. What would a herald do? A herald would go into a village and what would he do? You've seen the movies. He would blow a trumpet to get everybody's attention. And then he would say something like, Hear ye, hear ye. And then he would read the proclamation or the declaration. Now, the thing about a herald was that a herald never had the liberty to edit the message. I think the king should have actually said it this way, because this way, people are going to be more responsive. Now, the herald has a simple responsibility, and what is that responsibility? To deliver the message as it has been given. The rhetoricians of Paul's day, that didn't mean anything to them, right? You tweak the message, you do whatever. the, the, The message was irrelevant. It was the persuasiveness of the speech that mattered. And Paul says, no, no. In God's economy, what it is, is him being pleased by raising up people who will not go and create a message, but go out and deliver a message that's been given to them on my authority and Paul says, this is, this is how God is this is what God is pleased to do. He's pleased to through the preaching, to do what? to save those who are believing. God takes pleasure in saving those who believe through the foolishness of preaching. By the way, the emphasis falls on believing as a, as a current ongoing state, not of, of a decision, but in a state of belief. Those who are right now believing. God was absolutely pleased, delighted to do what? Through the foolishness of preaching to save those who are believing. Now here's, here's the magnificence, if you will, of, of this. In in Greco-Roman rhetoric, there were five stages of communication. There was attention, comprehension, yielding, retention, and then action. Those were the five stages of Greco-Roman rhetoric. Paul, now do you think Paul knew that? Oh, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. Absolutely. Paul is not only a Hebrew of Hebrews, he is also thoroughly immersed in Greek culture. Paul is not only, uh, you know, a Hebrew Jew, he is also with probably equal force a Hellenistic Jew. That is a Jew who had been brought into Greek culture. That is uh, that is his uh, context, that is his education, that is his life experience. And so he understood these things. Now, this, Paul think that uh, comprehension of the message is important. And the answer is, of course. Of course. And so from Paul's perspective, the comprehension part was his responsibility to proclaim the message of the cross in a way that those who are listening understood what was being said. And for Paul, his conviction, of course, given to him by God, was this. Is that that act of comprehension, of explanation, if you will, was something that was to be simple, straightforward, keeping the cross at the center of the message. And the reason he could renounce persuasiveness of speech and stick with a simple, straightforward declaration of the repugnant message of the cross was because the yielding part he knew was in the hands of the Spirit. Absolutely nothing he could do to get people to yield to the message. Now, that, that actually is not true. There are plenty of things that you can do to get people to yield to the message, but the question is whether they're yielding on the basis of your persuasiveness or are they yielding on the basis of the demonstration of the spirit and power. And so Paul in 2, 1 to 5 is going to say, the reason I didn't go the rhetoric way and the persuasive speech way is because I don't want your faith resting on the ingenuity of men. I want your faith resting on the power of God. And so for Paul, no clever strategies, no manipulative arguments, preaching of a offensive message, straightforward in the power of the Spirit, and God does the rest. By the way, if I did not believe that, I would never preach another sermon ever again. I I would retire and become a sniper. No, I don't know. I'm probably too old now, but if I did not believe that I'm responsible to do the best that I can do, but the results belong to God, if I did not believe that, I wouldn't dare open my mouth on behalf of Christ ever again. So Paul knew that the yielding part, that is in the Spirit's hand. David Garland, he says, the audience is dethroned as the ultimate arbiter of what is true or persuasive. The audience is dethroned of being able to to be the ultimate arbiter of what is true or persuasive. And and you have to understand that this this is the glory and the power of preaching the gospel. Is that... When the gospel is preached, the listener is not sovereign. The spirit is sovereign. So, um, when I was in seminary, we had to read this really awful book on preaching. I mean, it was really terrible. And um, the worst chapter in the book, it was contributed by by different pastors. And the worst chapter in the whole book... Was the one by uh, by Bill Hybels. The title of the book was Mastering Contemporary Preaching, and Hybels in there says the first five minutes of the sermon are absolutely crucial because that's where you either keep people or lose people. And remember, and I never forget, he says the listener is first of all the ultimate consumer. And he is sovereign over whether he will hear it or not. Okay. Now, what that means... Now, I'm not, I, I'm not in favor of um, thinking, okay, well, this is all the Spirit's work, so let's just be as boring as possible and really glorify God. Okay, that's, that's not the point, right? That's not the point at all. But the idea was, man, if you don't get, if you don't get the hook then you've lost them. And if you've lost them, then they're not, gonna, they're not gonna buy what you're selling. And here's what I wanna say. Nobody is sermon proof. You might think you are. You might think About 10,000 different things while Jason's preaching. (laughs) You might be thinking about 10,000 different things while I'm preaching. You might have your mind wandering. You might be thinking, when is this guy gonna get done? Good grief. You might be thinking, is he actually wearing white socks again? Why, I wish his wife would pick out his ties because they just don't match. You could be thinking about a hundred different things. You could be thinking about, boy, I wonder who's winning the football game. Are you responsible for how you hear? The answer is yes. But here's the reality. When the Spirit of God says it's time for you to listen, guess what you're going to do? You're going to listen. You are going to listen. And you can fight it. You can resist it. You can kick and scream and drag your feet and the whole nine yards. And the fact is, when the Spirit of God says, it's time for me to serve the warrant on your soul, boom, you're done. Okay? That's the sovereignty of God's Spirit. Okay? I mean... There have been people that have been converted who have slept. Now, I don't think that they were actually sleeping while they were converted, but people that had the tendency just to fall asleep while they were preach while I was preaching, or sit there bored out of their minds looking back at the clock, and and just I mean, just all kinds of, of human resistance and the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God says, today's the day of salvation, you're mine. Okay, that's right. That's right. He will pry your eyeballs open. He will pry your heart open. This whole idea, God's a gentleman and he'll never do anything against somebody's will. You better hope that's not true or else you'll end up in hell. I am thankful for a God that says, you know what? I'm stronger than you. And so, Paul says, I am so delighted that God is pleased through preaching. Silly, old, unimpressive me preaching the word of a crucified Messiah to save those who believe. Wow, that's how God gets glory. And so, you want a commentary on this, read Romans 1, 18 through three twenty. That's the commentary on this whole passage. Now, Paul goes on, and uh, it, it, it just goes from, from good to better. He says, verse 22, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. Okay, so uh, Paul's recognizing the fact that there are people that they, they just, they, they reject the message. And he says, and so let's talk about the Jews first. Jews ask for a sign. We're preaching a message of a crucified Messiah and Jews are asking for a sign. Now, how often in the ministry of Jesus did the Jews ask for a sign? Well, all the time. By the way, even when Jesus is hanging on the cross, hey, you know, get yourself down from there, do a really cool miracle, and then we'll believe. That's the, and here, here's the amazing thing. Jesus' ministry was full of signs. Jesus' ministry was full of wonders, full of miracles. And yet he would remind that very people that it is a wicked and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. And no sign is going to be given to them except the sign of Jonah. And, of course, the sign of Jonah is his own resurrection. And so, here they are. We want to see something. But, you know, the fact is, is that when people's hearts are hard and their eyes are blind, signs can happen right in front of them and they never see them. Yeah, I mean, this isn't this, this is the amazing thing of, for instance, John chapter 6? Jesus feeds 5,000 men, not counting women and children, with a few loaves and a few fish. And then verse 30, he asks for a sign. <laughs> yeah, so. so, by the way, miracles. Not only don't arguments bring people to saving faith, but miracles don't. You know. If I just saw a miracle... If you just saw a miracle, you just explain it away. Jews ask for a sign. Greeks seek for wisdom. And, of course, Paul uses the word Greek here instead of Gentile, probably because... Wisdom was so characteristic to the Greeks and the Greek influence carried on into Corinth and the Greco-Roman world. And so here you have two people, I want to see a sign and we want wisdom. And so guess what? You take those two people, you take their presuppositions, you take what they're committed to and how how persuasive do you think a message of a crucified savior is going to be to either one of them? And the answer is None. On, that message on its own is not going to persuade Jew or Greek. It's not philosophically sophisticated enough for the Greek, and it is, it is not showy enough for the Jew. It's as if the Jew stands there and goes, I want to see the Red Sea parted. And God says, the veil of the temple was parted. Well, So, I want to see the Red Sea parted. And so Jews ask for a sign, Greeks seek for wisdom, and then Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. This really is is just absolutely glorious. In other words, Paul's saying, I go around and just give people what they want. Right? (laughs) No. In fact, he's saying, just the opposite, right? If Jews are seeking for a sign and Greeks wisdom, why would you preach Christ crucified? That's not what they want. That's not what they're going to believe. And yet Paul is Christ crucified, he's the grand subject of all of our preaching. He's the grand subject of all of our theology. He's the grand center of, of, of all of the Bible. All of the Bible leads up to Christ crucified. The rest of the Bible flows out of Christ crucified. Christ crucified is the the center and the circumference of all biblical revelation. Christ crucified, that is the beginning, the middle, and the end of the revelation of God. And Paul says... We preach Christ crucified. Actually, the, the, the text says Christ having been crucified. The idea is perfect tense is he is forever the crucified one. He's not forever on the cross, but he will forever stand as the crucified one. Crucifixion will always be in view. How do we know that? Revelation chapter 5, John sees a lamb standing as if what? Slain. Now, Paul's obviously not itching or scratching where they itch, right? How do we know that? Well, because he says, you know what this message of Christ crucified is to the Jews? It's a stumbling block. It's a scandal on, it's a stumbling block. A Messiah hanged on a tree was a cursed Messiah, by the way, this is the stumbling block. You, you want to know why Paul says that the, that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews? It's because of the connotation that the cross would have had in light of Deuteronomy 21.31 where it says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So, in other words, even, even Paul, before he's converted, Saul of Tarsus, this is what, this is what enraged him. Were they awaiting the Messiah? And the answer is yes. Were they awaiting a Messiah who was going to come in power and glory and crush their enemies under his feet? And the answer is yes. Were they awaiting a Messiah who would come with political power and establish a kingdom and establish his throne in Jerusalem and rule over the nations and trample the Gentiles under his feet? That's what they're waiting for. And here's here's the Messiah crucified on a Roman cross. Blasphemy. Saul of Tarsus would have believed that was blasphemy. Why? God's Messiah can't be cursed of God. And yet, it was that very truth that God would use to bring that terrorist into submission. To his risen son, you can read this in Galatians three. Paul Paul puts it together. Cursed is everyone who does not do everything that's written in the book of the law. Christ, so that, so who's under the curse of the law? Who? Well, all of us, right? No perfect obedience under the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by having become a curse for us. The Apostle Paul realizes as Christ is revealed to him that it is this very reality that's a stumbling block to the Jews, which is a stumbling block to him before his conversion. This very reality of Christ becoming a curse is our only hope because we're already under a curse. Christ bears that curse on our behalf, in our place, becoming that curse for us so that we can be redeemed. So, really? You're following a crucified Messiah? Cursed by God, Paul says, exactly, <laughs> exactly. What about to the Gentiles? What is the message of the cross? Well, it's foolishness. Now, f- foolishness, is, uh, foolishness is an understatement. Nonsense is an understatement. Sheer madness is probably more in line with what Paul is getting at. The Gentiles are thinking, I mean, they, 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 they didn't have any affection for crucifixion. And so here, they're, okay, so what you're telling me, let me get this straight, is that God, who is spirit, became a man and was crucified? And you want me to believe in him? You are out of your gourd. You're kidding me. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That was the Gentile's response to the message. Not only does your God become a human, which is weird, but then he dies, which is stupid, and then he dies on a cross on top of that, which is more stupid, or if you prefer, stupider. Sheer madness. There's a stigma to the cross. There's a vulgarity to the cross. There's a repugnancy to the cross. And Paul says, you know what we do with both Jews and Greeks? We preach Christ crucified. It's not what they want. It's not what they're hankering after. It's not what floats their boat. But that's what we do. And then Paul brings up a third category of people. You have Jews, they look at the cross as a stumbling block. You have Greeks, they look it at it as foolishness. But then you have this other group of people, verse 24. This other group of people are called the called. Okay? So the called, notice verse 24, but to those who are the called. So we've got Jews, we've got Greeks, and those who are the called. And notice this This is really wonderful. Both Jews and Greeks. In other words, you've got Jews and you've got Greeks and you've got this group called the called and that group called the called is made up of both Jews and Greeks. Both Jews and Gentiles. How many of you are Gentiles? Oh, come on. You just want to be Jews if you're not raising your hand. I think Gail's the only one that has legitimate claim here. All of us are Gentiles, Goyim, outside the covenant, strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. No claim on God, no claim on His grace at all. Period. And Paul says, "Here's the great thing: God has this group of people. They're the called." And they're made up of people that were stumbled by the cross and by people who thought the cross was stupid. <laughs> now, how does that happen? How does that happen? How, does, how, does you, how do you go from, let's say, Saul of Tarsus to Paul, apostle to the Gentiles? How do you go from I'm a philosophically sophisticated Greek to I'm a follower of the crucified Jewish Messiah. How does that happen? Let me just tell you that this is bigger than going from Republican to Democrat. Okay? This is big. This is big. This is not just, this is not just, um, just like kind of like changing your philosophy on things. You know, when you get older, you start to think about things a little differently. If you notice that, okay, you just think about things a little differently. This isn't just, boy, I thought Christianity was stupid. Now I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm just thinking about it differently these days. That's not what happens. That's not what happens. What happens is you become called. Called. Now, let me just tell you that called is description of those who are being saved, verse 18, those who believe, verse 21. But understand this, for Paul, and he will get into this in 26 to 31, for Paul, being called or the calling of God is always, always, without exception, Always, the idea that the spirit of God has come and effectually done something in you to change you in order to make you now one of the called who believe in Jesus. Okay? This is a divine, sovereign, effective work of of the Spirit of God that, by the way, does not even depend upon your cooperation. Well, the Spirit calls and I answered. Okay, true enough. But who actually awakened you to answer? Well, the Spirit. You have to understand that the idea of being called is um, is is the idea of the Spirit of God coming and opening my eyes and opening my heart so that I believe. It's what we call irresistible grace. It's what we call effectual calling. This is... When God, the Holy Spirit says, you are now mine. And without that, you will never be his. We sing it. Right? We sing this truth. 544, 455, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke, the dungeon flamed with light, my chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what it is to be called. Paul says, you know what the called think about this crucified Savior? That to the Jews is a stumbling block and to the Greeks is foolishness. Here's what the called think. Christ, God's power, God's wisdom. That's what the called think. And this, let me just tell you, this is flat out awesome. All right? It just is. And so what happens is how in the world do you ever go, Christ, the embodiment of God's power. Christ, the embodiment of God's wisdom. How in the world does that happen? And the answer is through the effective call of God's spirit. And so those who are called, they have their eyes open and they see the beauty of Christ. They have their eyes open, they see the power of Christ. They have their eyes open, they see the wisdom of God embodied in Jesus Christ. And what, what happens when you see Christ as the wisdom of God and the power of God is that you see in his cross, your sins are forgiven. In the cross, God's wrath has been appeased through his substitutionary suffering. In the cross, reconciliation has happens in the cross redemption is accomplished a redemption that is greater than the redemption at the Red Sea and nothing is more powerful nothing is wiser nothing is more glorious than the cross of Jesus to to just regular human sight it looks like a tragedy it looks like weakness it looks like just the, the end to a sad story but to the eyes of faith, a crucified Messiah is the embodiment of God's power who delivers me from the power of death and hell and my sin, and he's the embodiment of the wisdom of God. It is the wisdom of God throughout all of the endless ages that consummates in the gospel message itself. Who could devise such a plan other than the all-wise God? (laughs) The gospel is Great. And then Paul gives a summary statement, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Just a summary statement here. God's foolishness in the cross is wiser than any human wisdom. So go ahead, humanity. Make up a way to deal with your sin and, and, and get to heaven. what's the history of religion man's efforts to earn his own righteousness we, by the way we're too proud to ever actually devise something that's based on grace alone you understand that right if i have something to do with it i'm going to have something to do with it god has everything to do with it so it's all of grace and so god god's fool, god's foolishness in the cross makes the wisdom of man absolute foolishness. The weakness of God is stronger than man. The weakness of God in the cross is stronger than any human strength, any human ingenuity. Okay, so we're basically done. Let me just make a few points of observation. First is the foolishness of preaching. We're going to deal more with that in 2, 1 to 5, but just note that it's the spirit that takes a foolish message of a crucified Messiah through foolish means to save people. Isn't it remarkable to you that here we are 2,000 years after the fact following Jesus? Second, the folly and weakness of the world's wisdom When Paul goes into all of this, this is really a worldview issue. Mere human wisdom, autonomous human reason is altogether inadequate to know God. He's going to expand on that in 2, 6 through 16. And so when we think about human wisdom, we have to remember that human wisdom is profoundly skewed. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Darkened in their understanding. Human wisdom cannot properly interpret God's revelation, whether it's natural revelation, general revelation, or special revelation. We we could say it this way, there there are no neutral facts. An unbeliever doesn't come to a set of facts neutrally and objectively. He comes to them skewed with a bias that's not bent in the right direction, it's bent in the wrong direction. And so what is it that can bring us to a appreciation to the beauty and the power of the cross? What is it that, that can take us from the world's view and can extricate us from worldly wisdom and bring us to the, to the cross, which, which stands as weakness and folly and nonsense, indeed madness? What is it that takes me from that to see in the beauty and the power and the glory of the cross of Jesus is nothing other than the Holy Spirit himself. In an old book by Gardner Spring called The Attraction of the Cross, he says at the end of the chapter, he says, such is the story of the cross. Has it no attractions? He says, no minister of the gospel ever rehearsed the narrative without a listening auditory. No mother ever sang it over the pillow of her babe without tenderness. No child ever read it without a throbbing heart. No man ever perused it with that with indifference. No dying man ever listened to it without emotion. The cross will be remembered when everything else is forgotten. It has intrinsic power and God himself has invested it with, the, with attractions peculiarly its own. Nothing will interest you like the cross. Nothing can do for you what the cross has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross on which Jesus died. We thank you for that substitutionary, curse-bearing, wrath-bearing death on our behalf. And Father, we thank you that in your time, You opened our hearts and our minds to that truth. And here we are tonight, believers, trusting Jesus and following him. Thank you for the message of the cross. May it shape our lives. May we be attracted to it as never before. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775-782-6516 or visit our website, gracenevada.com.